Welcome back to the Yellow Box Podcast. This week, we are joined by community pastor Ian Simpkins as we conclude our series, Feed Yourself. For more information, please visit us at www.communitychristian.org. And remember, you can always find us on Sundays at the Yellow Box at 9.30 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 5 p.m. We hope to see you there. Ah, that gets me every time. Um, I am supposed to inform you first that Illinois has decided to skip summer altogether and we're going right to fall. So pull out your parkas or flannels or whatever you wear during fall. Um, how many of you guys have heard the phrase before, you are what you eat? Okay, so, so think back to the last 24 hours of your life. Raise your hand if that sentiment is encouraging. Four of us, excellent. Um, now raise your hand if that sentiment is terrifying. Anyone? <laughs> yeah, right, okay. So like, if the last 24 hours was filled with green beans and kale for some reason, you'd be like, all right, I'm doing pretty good. If, however, it was filled with like Taco Bell and things that end in Edo, um, <laughs> you're probably like, no bueno. Um, <laughs> this, this phrase, you are what you eat, was actually coined in 1920 by a guy named Victor Lindlar. And here, here's what he writes. He said, 90% of the diseases known to man are caused by cheap foodstuffs. I think we should just bring back the word foodstuffs, right? <laughs> Isn't that just fun to say? Foodstuffs. You are what you eat. Now this is, I mean, this shows up all over the place. And arguably that statement is a lot of what drives like sort of healthy eating in the West. But I think this sentiment shows up most profoundly and most disturbingly in a little 2004 documentary called Supersize Me. Anyone seen Supersize Me? <laughs> Groans throughout the crowd. Um, Supersize Me was about a guy named Morgan Spurlock who decided to go through a little bit of an experiment. And the experiment was this. To eat only McDonald's for 30 days straight. S- some of you are like, what's wrong with that? We'll pray for you. Um, <laughs> in those 30 days, a lot happened, uh, not the least of which is that he gained 24 pounds and his cholesterol shot up to 230. Now, I'm not a doctor. I'm told that's bad. In fact, just to get back down to his original weight, he had to eat 14 months of vegan meals, which is maybe the most painful part of this whole story, right? Just 14 months of vegan meals. Now, This phrase, you are what you eat, I believe, is not only true physically, it's also true spiritually. You are what you eat. Uh, Week one of this series, we talked about tasting the word of God, making a commitment together to, to actually read God's word. Last week, we talked about chewing on the word, not, not just reading it to read it, but to actually like meditate on it to wrestle with the word of God. And today, what I want to talk about is this idea of digesting the word of God, making it actually become a part of us, not just something that we, we sort of read about kind of off in a distance. So, so what does it actually mean to digest the word of God? Here's first off what it doesn't mean. Uh, Babylon B posted an article this last week. <laughs> Some of you are ahead of me. Um, with this photo... And with this headline, the headline was this, latest biblical diet plan purees scripture into healthy shakes. Um, That's not what we're talking about today. So what does it actually mean 
to digest the word of God. Well, I want to actually look to Jesus himself. And in here in Matthew chapter 4, this is the scene. Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist, sort of indicates the beginning of his earthly ministry, sort of inaugurates his earthly ministry here. And after that baptism, Matthew chapter 4 starts like this. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Okay, so a couple of things I want to unpack just about these two verses here. First off, um, who led him to the wilderness? Come on, this is church. You can be loud. It's okay. Who led him to the wilderness? The, the Spirit led Jesus to the wilderness, which I think communicates for us that sometimes our wilderness season is not an accident and it's not the result of the devil or our sin. It's in the wilderness that our roots go down deepest. Are you tracking? Sometimes a wilderness season is not some kind of punishment, but in fact, we're being led there because it does something in us that flourishing environments don't do. The wilderness sometimes is very, very intentional. Now, this is also coming off of a pretty mountaintop moment, right? Like he was, he was just baptized. I don't know if you remember the scene, but like a voice from heaven says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Very James Earl Joni, I'm sure. Um, and a dove descends upon him. This is like, like the beginning of his public earthly ministry. And right after that, he's led where? To a wilderness. Can anyone relate to the rhythm of a mountaintop moment followed by the bottom dropping out? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Often that is the rhythm of our lives. Something awesome happens. We have this mountaintop moment. And often what happens immediately after that is that the devil, the enemy, will try to bust us apart. Try to get into our heads. That's often the rhythm that we find ourselves in. Now, it says that he's in the wilderness for 40 days. And that's not an arbitrary number. That wasn't wasn't by accident. Typically in scripture... Uh, when the word or when the number 40 shows up, it's indicating a time of testing or trial. There's, there's multiple places in scripture where 40 is linked to this idea of testing or trial. Now, lastly, uh, here in verse 2, it mentions the devil, right? And the devil here is the Greek word diabolos. And diabolos can mean slanderer. It means one who twists, one who distorts. In fact, you can probably even notice here in the root of this word is the word diabolical, right? Like most Bond villains are diabolical. They're trying to twist or distort something. In fact, Jesus himself in John 8 uh, describes the evil one this way, a liar and the father of lies. So that's a heck of a resume builder, right? Not just a liar, but the Mac daddy of lies, right? The, the, one, the one from whom all lies, deception, twisting, distortion, perversion originates and comes from. So the job of the, the, the slanderer is to obstruct the will of God and to break apart his people. And in this case, in this instance, he goes after Jesus. So I, I want to I walk through this passage and I want you to notice uh, two things. One, how the slanderer attacks. And the second how Jesus responds. Okay, so as we walk through this, be listening for how the slanderer attacks and how Jesus responds. Okay, so Jesus is in the wilderness. 
the text tells us that he's been fasting for 40 days. And then Matthew makes this incredibly profound observation. He says this, uh, he hungry, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> wow, okay, thanks, Matthew. He was fasting and he didn't eat food and now he's hungry. But I think this is something really, really uh, significant for us to note. That while he still was fully God, he was also fully man. He got tired, he got fatigued, and he got hungry. Jesus is in the wilderness and he's hungry. And then in verse three, the slanderer comes after him and says, hey man, you, you got the power, you're Jesus. Why don't you turn these rocks into bread, right? It's a, it's a pretty... It's a pretty sneaky temptation. He's been fasting. He appeals to this thing that he's probably very aware of in this moment. You're hungry. Let's turn these rocks into bread. Now, I don't know about you, but like in this moment, I like to imagine that the, uh, the enemy was somehow conjuring up the smell of Cinnabon while he's saying this, right? <laughs> like, can anyone in this room smell Cinnabon and not go then purchase Cinnabon? Right? It's like the size of a beanbag. You can feed a, like a family of four with one. But there, it's, there's something about this appeal, this engagement, where, where the enemy is recognizing, I know that you're hungry. You have the power. You're Jesus. Why, why don't you just simply make some bread? Now, if you're reading this or tracking along, you're thinking, okay, that's fine. But I'm not usually tempted to turn rocks to bread, right? Most of us in this room probably don't feel that temptation all that strongly. But here's why I think that verse is really significant for us today. Jesus is famished. Physically, he's at his most weakened state and he's tempted by the thing arguably that he desires most in that moment. The, the thing that is most central in his mind at this moment is probably, man, I'm, I'm hungry. And the temptation is to doubt God's provision. So I want to ask this morning, what, what is your greatest desire this morning? What's the, what's the thing that holds your greatest longing? Maybe it's relief from stress and anxiety, and, and you're tempted to do anything you can to escape it. You're tempted to do whatever it takes to even for a moment escape the stress and anxiety that you feel. Maybe you want respect. Maybe more than anything in this world, you desire, you crave, you long for respect. And when you don't get it, you either rage or you withdraw. Or maybe for you, maybe it's in the area of intimacy, what you crave what you long for, what you desire more than anything is intimacy. And the way that the slanderer works is he takes something that God placed in a desire that I believe is good and then twists it and distorts it and makes it something toxic. I think we've all had those moments, right? Where we've looked at something or someone and stepped back and said, man, more than anything in this world, that's what I need. Are you tracking? Anyone ever said that to themselves before? That's what I need. And those desires, those longings, as I said, aren't aren't bad. I believe that in many cases they're placed there by God. But the temptation is to take a shortcut to get to what God has promised. To doubt his provision and just to get there on our own 
terms. That's the temptation here. And after 40 days, Jesus is arguably thinking, man, there's nothing in this world that I desire more in this moment than food. But here's how Jesus responds. He says, it is written, man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what he's saying here, Jesus is saying, food actually isn't my greatest need right here. What I can't live without is God, God's word, God's presence, God's direction. It may seem like food is that, but it is not. Now this this phrase here, I think it's really interesting, it is written shows up almost a hundred times throughout scripture. It is written, shows up over and over and over again, which seems to imply that it's important for us to know what is written. Knowing what's written, knowing what's actually written, I believe is massively significant. I remember going to a church years ago and the, uh, the preacher stood on the stage and he was, he was kind of like in like the, the, the climax of this message. And he says, it's like the good book says, a penny saved is a penny earned. And I was like, mm. <laughs> I think that's from a book. I don't think that's from the good book. Jesus is going to continue to show us here how important it is for us to know what is actually written. What does his word actually say? Okay, so after this first attack, Jesus is then somehow transported to uh, the top of the temple in the center of Jerusalem. And I, I have no idea if this is like a, like a Star Trek beam me up moment or if they just walked up there. I'm not sure. But mo- most scholars believe that this particular point where they stood overlooked the Kidron Valley. So it would have been like a pretty, a pretty significant drop of like, like dozens and dozens of yards from where they were standing to the bottom. And um, the slander essentially says this. Go ahead. Just jump. God will catch you, right? Here's what he says, right? Just jump. Throw yourself down. For it is written. Do you see how slick the enemy is here? In the, in the first temptation, Jesus responds with what? Scripture. By quoting scripture. The slander comes back in round two and quotes what? Scripture. I, I don't mean to spook anybody, but it seems clear that the enemy actually knows the Bible. Probably better than us. He comes back in round two, quoting scripture. He says, come on, God's got your back, right? Just jump and then everyone in Jerusalem will see it and the angel, it'll be incredible and everyone will know that you're God. This is the perfect plan. Everyone will believe in you. Now, again, most of us, I think, we're we're not like tempted to jump off of temples for the most part. We're not tempted to do that. But occasionally, though, the slanderer will whisper in our ear, come on, just develop your own plan to get what you want. And at the end of the day, God will bail you out anyway, right? You do you because God's merciful. He'll bail you out. You don't got to worry about it. Just look out for number one. And it's probably worth stating bluntly that God is not a genie in a lamp. He's not here to do our bidding. Some of you perhaps were handed that particular brain of theology, and if so, I'm very sorry. That, that's not God's role. He is king. He is Lord. He's not here to do our bidding. And so, so Satan 
comes at Jesus by quoting scripture and here, here's how Jesus responds. Jesus answered him, it is also written, punk. Uh, <laughs> I added that part for emphasis. Um, it's also written, <clears throat> do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus refuses to make God prove himself. And where did he get that response? From scripture. Again, saying it is written, it is written, it is written. Finally, the slanderer gives Jesus some kind of vision of like all the kingdoms of the world. And he kind of says to him, you you could have it all, man. Power, wealth, prestige, success, everything. If you just bow down and worship me one time, it's all yours. It's all yours. Which again, at first blush, sounds like, oh, one, one time. How, I mean, that, maybe that's worth it. I don't know. And again, I don't think most of us are like really feeling tempted deep down to become Satan worshipers. Most of us. M- maybe if you are. But most of us deep down are like, we're not about to go don like black capes and like start worshiping the dark underlord. Like that's not... That doesn't, like, that doesn't hit us at the heart level for most of us. But I would argue this was not ultimately about bowing down to Satan. It was more about loyalty. It was about doubting God's promises, his power. It was about bowing down to anyone or anything other than God. Which I would assert we've all felt the weight of that. We've all felt the tension of that. Essentially, that's putting, putting in place of God anything other than God. That's the Bible calls idolatry. For, for, for you, maybe it's work. Maybe in your mind, the ultimate goal is career and success. And you would sacrifice anything to get it. Perhaps maybe even you're feeling it this morning. You're sacrificing relationships. You're sacrificing maybe your own health. Maybe you're feeling like you're sacrificing your own sanity. And we bow down at the altar of success. Maybe, maybe for you, we, you, you worship relationships. A certain relationship is the ultimate goal. And you're willing to sacrifice all other relationships to keep it or maintain it. In fact, perhaps maybe your convictions, your beliefs go on the back burner so that you can maintain it and we worship at the altar of romance. Or this last one, it's not a very popular one to talk about. Maybe for you, it's your kids. You're willing to do whatever it takes to make your kid happy or successful. And again, obviously God wants healthy, flourishing families, but he doesn't want anything to take the number one place that he's reserved specifically for him. And so maybe we sacrifice everything else so that our kids are happy, so that they get every opportunity and we worship at the altar of family. So how does Jesus respond to this temptation? He responds with more scripture here in verse 10. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so after he deals with the slander, I love how this passage wraps up in verse 11. It says, then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. The devil left him and the angels came 
and attended him. Now, the elephant in the room is we've used the word devil a few times today, right? And part of what I think is problematic is that a lot of us, when we, when we hear the word devil, don't we picture like he's about this big, he's always on my right shoulder, he has like a red cape and horns and a pitchfork, right? He's adorable, isn't he? <laughs> Little old devil. Now that would be a fine understanding if it wasn't for the Bible. In fact, the Apostle Paul describes him this way. Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light, which means if we could see him, he would likely at times be very attractive, very alluring, very, very compelling, very handsome. Peter goes on to describe the enemy this way. He says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. See, if our, our picture isn't like a little cartoon devil on our shoulder, we then tend to like assume he looks just like awful and grotesque and really easy to avoid because of it. My, my, my point is this. When it comes to the spiritual realm, when it comes to our day-to-day life, it's not just us and God, right? I know that it's easy to believe that. In fact, it's really understandable why we would want to believe that, right? It's just me hand in hand with buddy Jesus and he's got his like Miss America sash and we're just like sprinkling Jesus dust everywhere we go and life is wonderful, right? <laughs> okay, maybe that was too much. Uh, but the Bible tells us there's a very real enemy who wants nothing more than to break up our marriages, to break up our communities, to get us fighting with one another, to get us distracted by things that don't actually matter there's an enemy that wants nothing more than to eat us alive and to not acknowledge that is to leave ourselves vulnerable fully and completely vulnerable there is an enemy enemy and he often looks very different than what we anticipate no horns no cape no pitchfork but someone who's ready to devour but as cunning as the adversary is, look at what James, the brother of Jesus, says about the devil. He says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The word flee simply means to run away. Will flee from us. So, so the question maybe on some of your minds is, how do we actually do that then? How do we actually resist the enemy? One way that we do that is through his word. When when God's word becomes a part of us, it's accessible when the battle comes. And that's a when, not an if. I probably don't have to convince most of us in this room. It's a when, not an if. The battle will come. Some of you, perhaps you feel like you're in a battle right now. When, When God's word isn't just something that we like read to check a box, but it becomes a part of us, becomes accessible when the battle comes. Now, if you remember, uh, week one, we challenged all of us together to daily read the Bible, to weekly meditate on the Bible. And today, I want, us to cha- I want to challenge one of us together to allow the Bible, to allow the Word to forever become a part of us. It means to, to memorize Scripture, to, to commit it to memory. Now, I I grew up in a Christian homeschool family, so a lot of times, like, memorization was simply something that I had to do, but I can tell you, it's, it's come in handy more often than I ever 
could have anticipated. And we don't, we don't memorize so that it's like some kind of party trick. That would not be a great party trick in the first place. We do it so that it actually becomes a part of us. So the last couple of weeks, we've talked about read, reflect, respond, right? And we've been reading and reflecting on this particular passage in James. So today, I want to I zone in just on, um, on one verse. And uh, we're actually going to memorize a verse together. So we're, we're going to memorize James 1.19. And we're going to begin just by saying it aloud together. Okay, so uh, would you with me, join me out loud together on the count of three. One, two, three. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Okay, so now in memorizing, it's, it's really helpful to just say it a few times. So let's, let's do it aloud one more time together. Ready? One, two, three. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Okay, well done. Now, what I'm going to do is take a few of the words away... And we're going to say it aloud together again. Do you think we can? Do you, I mean, I'm going to do it anyway. So, um, and I'm not going to say it aloud. I'm not, I'm not going to allow you to cheat like that. We're, we're all going to say it aloud together, all right? And uh, feel free to help your partner if someone near you is struggling. Okay, ready? On the count of three. One, two, three. My dear... Okay, not bad, not bad. We got mixed up with some of the words there, but I think it actually will be easier if we take more words away, don't you think? Let's take some more words away. Okay. <laughs> I say we give it a shot. What do you think? All right, let's do it together on the count of three. One, two, three. All right, we're getting there. I believe in us. Okay, now the final test is just a blank slide. Um, <laughs> here we go. Who's with me? Come on, let me hear you. Who's with me this morning? All right, here we go. Ready? One, two, three. You did it. You, we all just memorized James 1.19 and it took us, what, a couple of minutes? And l- let me just ask you, like, like next time you're tempted to fly off the handle and lose your cool, do you, do you think that maybe you could draw some strength from knowing this verse? I mean, I, I, I don't want to jump down this person's throat. I'm going to be quick to listen. I'm going to be slow even to speak, slow to become angry. Now, I'm not, I'm not very good at this. This verse has been an encouragement to me so many times throughout my life. I often listen to respond rather than listening to understand. Anyone know what I'm talking about? And, and this verse is a reminder to us to take note of this. Anytime the Bible says take note, we should pay attention. And we did that in just a couple of minutes. Imagine what would happen if we collectively over the next year decided to actually make the word become a part of us. So here are a couple of tips uh, and how to actually do that, how to actually um, memorize scripture. The, the first is to write it down. And I realize that's not profound, um, but it's easy to miss this one. You can write it on an index card, put it in your dashboard, we will see it. One of the things I like to do is I'll just write it in the notes on my phone. And sometimes I'll just screenshot it and make that my wallpaper. That way, every time I look at my phone, 
There's that verse staring me in the face. I'm told that some of us look at our phones a lot. I don't know if that's true. But write it down and do what we just did. Like, see if you can remember it a couple times during your commute. Like, take a couple of words out. Just practice actually committing it to memory. Uh, the second thing is you can use an app like uh, Scripture Typer. Uh, scripture Typer is, is perfect for people like me because I, I get distracted really easily. And Scripture Typer um, makes memorization like, kind of like a game. And it will quiz you on previous things that you've learned. If you're interested in something like that, this is a great app to help you grow in Scripture memorization. And the last thing, and, and it's again maybe obvious, but it's really easy to overlook. It's to use this verse in prayer. To use this verse in prayer. I can't tell you how many times I've been convicted by how bad I am at something that I'm studying or preparing to teach. But to pray, God, I'm quick to become angry. I'm not slow to speak. I'm not quick quick to listen. Will you help me with this? Because your word says that this is important and I need your help to do it. Now, up until this point, We've talked about Scripture pretty much as sort of a, a defensive tool, right? But Scripture also, though, is an offensive tool. Paul writes it this way. He says that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. So it's not just this defensive tool where we can kind of like guard ourselves against the enemy. Like, like knowing this book, having it become a part of us, is part of what mobilizes us to live on mission together. To bring hope and healing to a hurting world. Could our world use a little bit of that these days? By making this word become a part of us, we we actually can see people for for who they really are, the way that God sees them. It's it's better for our marriages. It's better for our families. It's better for our communities. We, We don't just simply memorize these things because somebody told us we should. But that in so doing, we look more and more like Jesus in a world that desperately needs Jesus. And you can't say it is written if you haven't read it. Right? And it is written. This word that is a gift. It's a gift given to us. It's how we spur one another on. It's how we know who we really are. It's how we bring love and grace and justice and mercy into every corner of this earth. It's how it's done by the power of the Holy Spirit. We say, God, your word is a gift. And it's given to us not not just to collect dust on our shelves or to be the app that we never open. God, help this come alive more and more for me every single day, not for my glory, but so that others may know you to help more and more people find their way back to God. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us well beyond what we could ever dream or deserve. And God, I pray for whatever it is in this room that's weighing in on us, whether it's stress or anxiety, whether it's longing for a relationship, whatever altar we're bowing down to, whether it's success or sex or family or identity or purpose, whatever that is, God, 
help us to see those things for what they are. Those desires aren't bad, but help us to see the way that the slanderer twists and distorts in our mind and our heart. And may we be a people, God, who take seriously this invitation to not just read your word, not just to, not just to meditate on it, but for it to become a part of us. God, thank you. You invited us to join you in the work of loving a broken and hurting world. May it be said of us, God. We pray these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.